Good morning. It is truly good to be here. And uh, as we come to the end of this, uh, of this Amen conference, I'm kind of reminded of the, um, of the, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, of the time when the disciples went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And of course, after that high point in their own um, encounter with Jesus and with the Transfiguration, uh, Peter's response was, Master, let's stay up here and make three statues. But Jesus said it's time to go down to the valley. So our time to go down to the valley is soon approaching, uh, which is the valley of service. Um, but I must say this morning, one of the, it seemed like one of the traditions that Amen has begun to acquire uh, since I've been in leadership is that um, uh, the last message of the, of, the, of the event is always left to the president, which is usually the lowest audience. But... Uh, <laughs> At the same time, I'm, I'm really pleased, and this morning, even as we present this, uh, I'm really pleased at the work of Tini Finley and that she is uh, preparing the CD, audio CD for you. So some of you will be hearing me through that audio CD, and I want to I appreciate the fact that you have taken the time to listen to this as well. Um, I would have felt bad otherwise this morning, uh, getting up knowing that quite a few people had to make their exit already, until I remembered that um, uh, an illustrious... Um, a speaker, well-versed in theology, had to speak to an even smaller audience even during this weekend. That was Elder Finley speaking to John Chung and a few medical students to pre- present his message all over again. So, so with that in mind, um, it cannot be that, that bad. So, but it's good to be here this morning, and the Lord has a message for us. Um, we have come to the end of this conference, and this conference is a culmination of several months of vision and planning. As a matter of fact, I still remember that night this past February at Cahada Springs in Georgia, when after two stirring messages from Elder Finley, we, um, we felt impressed, those of us who were there from, and who are now in the leadership of Amen, to get together and actually propose a formation of a self-supporting ministry comprised of physicians and dentists envisioned and operated and administered by them. And that was the beginning of what is now called the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. At that point, we also made a giant step that we will propose a first annual conference in Southern California in the fall. We did that at a time when we had no membership, we had no finances, we had no administrative director to help us with the administrative function of this organization. But we felt a strong conviction that the, that the time had come for us who are part of that right arm to take hold of our own responsibility as the right arm and to, to envision this and to make it happen. And indeed, as we have come to the end of this conference, that has truly been a testimony to the success of that idea. And the, and, and, and the rest is now history, but I must say the greatest history for Amen is still yet to be written in the future. Um, we will only know in the future what uh, only eternity will give us a complete accounting of the spiritual impact of what each one of you will have done as members of Amen. See, in the end... Amen is, I'm not for this organization called Amen for the sake of another name or, uh, or another organization. No, the organization is only as important as a contribution each one of us will make to achieve the mission the great physician has entrusted to us. And that brings me to my topic this morning. Medical evangelism, where do we go from here? Let us bow our heads for prayer. 
Thank you, dear God. We're grateful for the opportunity to dwell in your presence. And this morning, like the year that King Uzziah died when Isaiah was in that temple and he saw the seraphims and the cherubims, we pray that each one of us will, ha will catch a vision of how big you are, how great you are, and the great potential you have before us in a, in a partnership with you. So we invite your presence this morning, and as I present this message on your behalf, we pray that your spirit will dwell with each one of us. And thank you for speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1983, and I arrived at Montemorelos University in Mexico, where I graduated from, to begin my medical education. I had just completed pre-med at West Indies College, now called Northern Caribbean University in Jamaica. And several months before that, I was personally interviewed by the then Vice President for Medical Affairs at Montemorelos University, Dr. Dwight Evans, who had come to our college for that purpose. You all remember the usual question, why do you want to become a physician? And my answer was unhesitating and sincere. I saw the profession as a tool for soul winning, which is the most important objective that one can pursue. You see, three years prior to that, I was not even a Seventh-day Adventist, not even a Christian, and not even sure what my life work was to be. I had been exposed to Adventism at around 11 years of age by my eldest sister, who had attended an evangelistic series in the country of Guyana in South America, where we grew up. And she had made a giant step at that time to depart from the religion of our foreparents, which was Hinduism, and become a Christian, and even more so becoming a small sect in Guyana at that time, Seventh-day Adventist, and accepting the three angels' message. I had actually been baptized at, the, at that age, at about 11 years of age, but my experience was shallow and brief, and even worse, I left with a strong desire to avoid any contact with Adventists. My return and total surrender to Christ did not come easy, but suffice it to say that the Lord pursued me all those years until I was on my 18th birthday after a protracted and strange illness, which actually took me in bed for a whole week, and I still cannot recall what actually happened. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I surrendered my life to the Master. It was only after that that I sensed my calling to the healing ministry of being a co-worker with a great physician. Soon after that, the doors opened for me to experience the benefits of a Christian education at a college level in Jamaica and subsequently at our medical institution at Montemorelos in Mexico. Arriving in Mexico was quite a culture shock, especially since I did not speak the language, but somehow, but somehow I, I, the Holy Spirit impressed me with one of the statements of Ellen White in the book Education, which is that education was more than the acquisition of knowledge. It was meant for the development of character and a preparation for service. And preparation for service is much more far-reaching than just the acquisition of knowledge. And so I was really impressed with that. It was most important for that, that character development. I also came with a firm belief that if I was going to be a medical evangelist, then I should look for opportunities to be exposed to that line of service, even while I was learning a new language and engaging in the intense and demanding experience of being a medical student. Well, one student organization that immediately caught my interest was ALMA, A-A-L-M-M-A. -M -M -A. And uh, the ALVAs are very familiar with that because we were contemporaries at Montemorelos. And uh, it was an organization of medical, uh, uh, envisioned and administered by medical students and led by them uh, in the area of medical missionary work. ALMA had two objectives. The first was to go out every Sabbath afternoon after church and to do medical missionary work in the surrounding villages which were many in that uh, rather uh, depressed part of the country. 
The second was to send out teams of physicians and dentists to the far reaches uh, of Mexico to provide much-needed medical and dental care to very poor and medically destitute communities far from the campus. This was accomplished during our annual spring and winter breaks and was a great boost to the visibility and penetration of Adventist churches in those areas. One of the themes I joined when I arrived there was, uh, was going to a village called La Union, uh, consisting of over 90 people less than an hour away from our campus. There were no Adventist believers in that community, and indeed it had been attended, attempted several times by other Adventist groups as well as various evangelical groups to establish a work there but without success. People in that community, like most of Mexico, were steeped in Catholic traditions and beliefs and very resistant to any teaching, any other teaching, but not fortunately hostile to it. We decided that we were, we were going to do something different, and that is we were going to use the method of Christ as outlined in a ministry of healing, mingling with people as one desiring their good, meeting their felt needs, establishing trust, and only then bidding them to follow us. So every Sabbath afternoon on a consistent basis, we went along with some senior medical students. I was a junior. I was the first year at that time. I went to the senior medical student, and we offered free medical care for basic health conditions, as well as free health lectures, which I participated in, and were very well received. In the meantime, the non-medical aspects of our team, which were other ancillary medical-oriented student, uh, medical students, uh, dietitians, nurses, um, um, clinical laboratory folks, as well as our colleagues in the pastoral ministry who were in training as well. We, uh, they visited the people and established relationships. At the end of the first year, we were surprised when people came requesting Bible studies and expressed a specific interest in our beliefs as Seventh-day Adventists. This was interesting because we never really made any direct um, uh, effort towards overt evangelism during that first year. But they knew we were from, we were Christians, we were from an Adventist community, and they wanted to learn more about us and what motivated us to do what we were doing. So at the inception of the second academic year, we offered Bible studies and were surprised that almost all of the families in that village participated in those studies. At the end of that year, we conducted a public evangelism series and, del and del uh, delivered by one of our own theology majors, who was an integral part of that group from the very beginning. I was well known by those people. And at the end of the series, I was pleased to visit each family with, uh, with uh, one of our, our senior theology team members and, uh, and visit each family and uh, seek, in seek uh, decisions. And I, at that particular day, my soul was stirred when 25 people in that village decided to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. Say amen to that. And after that initial baptism, we had an additional six people from one family who were also baptized, bringing our total over 30 in a village of only about 45 adults. By all accounts, it was a resounding success with all the glory to God and the power of his spirit. I'm happy to say that I, recently I encountered... Um, uh, an old professor of mine at one of the ASI events, and he is still down there at Montmorris, and I asked him, how are the brethren doing at La Union? He said, I'd be happy to tell you now, and they're going very strong, and the pastoral folks have taken them under their wings and are still ministering to them there. Well, I learned several important lessons from that, which, uh, which uh, shape my whole perception of what Amen's potential is. One lesson I learned is that medical evangelism works. 
by, by every definable endpoint, speaking to a medical community, by every definable endpoint, medical evangelism worked there and it will work again. Uh, people were exposed to the gospel, they were exposed to our unique beliefs, and, they accept, and then they accepted them and were baptized and became members of our church. Number two is that medical evangelism can achieve success where others cannot. If our theology brethren had gone in totally on their own and seek to do what everybody had done before, it would never have been possible. And that's one lesson that I learned as well. Number three, collaboration with others is critical to success in medical evangelism. And it's something that we would do well to bear in mind as we go from here, physicians and dentists, to learn that by working with our colleagues in the pastoral ministry, working our colleagues in other or the ancillary services of medical care, we can achieve much which we would not be able to achieve totally on our own. Number four was that the Lord is willing and eager to pour out his spirit. Those were spirit-filled days that I remember well because at the university every Wednesday we would meet as a group and enter into a season of prayer, interceding on behalf of our efforts in that village. And that was the most important act that precipitated the success we had. And finally, the benefits personally were profound and far-reaching. I, I still remember that at the time, occasionally I find myself on a Friday evening or a Sabbath afternoon or Sunday even going down there, visiting people, offering Bible study in the midst of a very, very demanding medical uh, education curriculum. Yet by the, end of the, by the end of the second year, without being one fluent in Spanish, I was second in my class. It is amazing how much the Lord can fulfill all the aspects of your priority when you take hold of his priority, and that occurs even now. And that's why I want to especially encourage our medical students and residents that while you may think that the curriculum is very demanding and the demands upon you clinically are extremely engaging, there is still time left to seek out opportunities for ministry even as you train to minister in the future. And the whole sense of trying to defer it until later may be a serious mistake. So I encourage you to think seriously of what you can do now because it certainly was a good experience for me and it shaped where I am now and how I perceive medical evangelism. Well, fast forward to me more recently. In more recent times, in the year 998, only seven years ago, I had been in Stanford, Kentucky for one year working with another colleague, and I decided to launch out my own in private practice. Ministry was far from my mind. My motives were inherently self-centered and materialistic. I needed a new house, a better car, more money, in the bank, and the patient was a means to get there. From a purely secular standpoint, there was nothing unethical, immoral, or indeed illegal about this. After all, you know the usual reasoning. I have sacrificed all those years. I provide good care, and I deserve this and even more. I even brought a builder to my house with my wife to, to tell him what type of house I was going to build within a year. Well, the Lord had different plans for me. Within six months of starting out, I found myself heavily in debt, not able to pay my, myself, drawing off an ever-extending line of credit, which the bank was happy to extend every day. <laughs> Soon I found myself moonlighting in, emergency, in a local emergency room at night and seeing my patients during the day to keep myself from going further into debt. Also, to keep my expenses down, my wife, who's a registered nurse by training, came to work with me full-time in the office to keep payroll costs down. And my only child, my daughter, three years old at that time, ended up in daycare. 
Now, th that doesn't sound to you like the American dream. As a matter of fact, it sounds more like the American nightmare. <laughs> Today, I'm impressed to say to you, my fellow colleagues, many of us, like myself, who started out on this journey to become medical evangelists, have lost our way. We've forgotten the God who has called us and gave us our professional skill and talents to glorify him and further his cause. However, since you're here, forgive me, I may be preaching to the choir, but many of you know colleagues, friends who have lost their way, and the message of the Lord comes to us in Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend money on what is not bread, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What an invitation. So I invite you to join with us in Amen today to pray for lost friends and colleagues who are in the situation of backsliding and lukewarmness. I know I extended invitations to over 20 people that are personally acquainted with, and they fell on literally deaf ears. But let us not stop praying and inviting our colleagues to be reengaged in the work of medical evangelism and to experience with the Lord that comes through that. Well, I'm happy to say that my journey did not end there. After over six months of a desert experience, an experience in which my prayers didn't go beyond the ceiling, in which my, my, I went in an absolute state of true clinical depression. I remember days trying to get up and make the next day, and uh, I just didn't have the motivation. I came close to abandoning something that I love to do so dearly, which is obstetrics, and to restrict my practice and to, and to actually move out of the community. But my problem was really internal. And, uh, but after all of this time, I came out of my mental and, and spiritual doldrums. And like Jonah coming out of the fish, I began to take deep breaths of fresh air of walking with the Master. The most important lesson I learned is one of stewardship, a simple concept that drives me every single day. That is, the Lord owns me, all that I have, my time, my talent, and most importantly, my material possessions. I tell you, my colleagues, it is so liberating to relinquish ownership and to take up stewardship on behalf of the King of Kings, the one who owns it all. Many of us here, and especially those who are not here, need to experience this. The Lord is calling us to experience the blessings of walking with him once again in an owner-stewardship relationship, a master-servant relationship, and with that comes innumerable blessings. Isaiah 55.1, that same chapter, records it well. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And probably New Testament equivalent of that is found in Matthew where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It is easy. My burden is light. It is a wonderful invitation. Well, within a year of my stewardship mindset, I was able to envision and construct on behalf of the owner with a big O, the master owner, the largest private medical facility in our small community. As I refocused on the patient as a soul to be ministered to, the Lord expanded my domain as his manager. He led me to greater giving to his cause so that a few years ago, I finally exceeded in charitable giving what I used to do what used to be my total income when I came out of residency. And that was quite, when I started, I said, Lord, you brought me a far way. My accountant warned me to prepare for an IRS audit because I was off the statistical norm. <laughs> and sure enough, within the uh, last year only, I came home one evening 
to receive a letter from the IRS uh, with a, for a targeted audit on my charitable giving. And um, most of you who think of a letter from the IRS, being a business owner, you're immediately, your heart would sink. Well, you know, I was amazed at myself. I actually rejoiced. I said, you know, this is going to be a wonderful opportunity for an IRS auditor and some bureaucrat in Washington to learn that they are servants of the Almighty God out there who give liberally. <laughs> so sure enough, after, uh, sure enough, after attending, after sending out, gathering my receipts, uh, donation receipts, I sent it in with a letter from my accountant. I was notified of a clean slate. And my accountant uh, reassured me. He said, the rule is once they audit you now, you're clear for at least two years. So he said, go out there, Dr. Jen, do what you need to do now. <laughs> that was just a jest. He didn't tell me that. <laughs> Very godly accountant I have. So. Um, I tell you, my friends, for those of you who the Lord has entrusted much, and I know it's not all of you in the medical profession, I'm very cognizant of people like Dr. Turquato, Dr. Michael Durson, who have made significant sacrifices, uh, people like our own colleague, Michael Orlich, who works at Weimar. So it's not all of us, but those of us who are entrusted with much means, the Lord expects more from us. And um, honestly, we all should head towards that goal of being audited. Because we're not, we're probably not giving enough yet. <laughs> so, um, materialism is really sapping the spiritual energy of many of our colleagues and it is stunting the work of the master here and overseas. It is getting in the way of a greater intimacy with the Savior. So I invite you to join us in Amen in giving to the cause of medical evangelism. I'm happy to say that this board of Amen has led out by example in that they provided a close to actually over 20000 for initial startup costs for Amen. And that was truly leading by example. But yesterday in our offering, and this message was prepared before that, we, um, it was so exciting to see you in the membership and those who are not here or who have left already, the amazing sacrifice being made consistent with their commitment to medical evangelism. Well, in the beginning of the year 2000, I was impressed to study again the life of Christ as outlined in the Gospels. I had read the Gospels many times, but this time I committed to the Lord to seek to understand what were the implications of his teaching for my life and to be bold in implementing those principles in my life. I doubled and finally tripled the early morning devotional time, yet it took me over four years to go through the four Gospels, putting scripture upon scripture, uh, taking each from the concordance and going back to the other texts and just, just studying it in, in a quiet time with the Lord. Well, brethren, I confess to you that I'm a radically different person and a radically different physician than who I was before that devotional experience, which is still ongoing. And so I stand before you as a living testimony to the power of this book. And I commend it to you for serious study, particularly the life and ministry of our Savior. I want you to turn, as part of my study, I came across several segments in the Gospels that I really found very uplifting. And I want to turn, first of all, to Mark 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, one that truly inspires me in the whole area of medical evangelism and gives us a moral, philosophical basis for what we do and why we have the strong biblical mandate to do it. And I will read, when he had come to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. 
And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning in that way within himself, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And the reason why I read that, I found that very unique as I studied through the Gospels among ev- compared to every other account of Jesus' healing, and there are many. There's the, there's the woman with the issue, there is the blind Bartimaeus, there is the man sitting by the pool of Bethsaida. You, you see all these, but this is unique in that he just, this man was, uh, Ellen White sheds a lot of light of this in Desire of Ages, in that um, this man was close to dying, and he, but his problem was deeply spiritual, and not so much physical. As a matter of fact, she said that from the time Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you, he was contented to remain in that state even just to have received forgiveness. And that brings me to the point um, Matthew Henry commentary also records, curing disease was a figure of his pardoning sin, for sin is a disease of the soul. When it is pardoned, it is healed. And so the master physician was able to make the correct diagnosis and the proper management. I have often wondered how many times each day we mismanage our patients by not paying attention to their spiritual priorities within the clinical presentation. How often in the care of the patient we neglect the underlying cause or the exacerbating spiritual factor in the clinical presentation. So I challenge all of us to, deliber- to be deliberate in seeking to the minister to the spiritual needs of the patient. In the Ministry of Healing, page 119 is recorded an injunction for all of us as physicians and dentists. Into the medical ministry, I quote, medical missionary work, I quote, should be brought a deep yearning for souls. To the physician equal with the gospel minister is committed the highest trust ever committed to man. Whether he realizes it or not, every physician is entrusted with the cure of souls. And so whether you realize it or not, and during that time when I was pursuing other priorities, it was still entrusted to me, the cure of souls. Bonnie came to me last week. She's 56 years old, a patient of mine who had been following for several years with end-stage COPD due to heavy smoking, which she continues to do. She had just been discharged from the hospital after a bout in the ICU for respiratory failure, relieved with BiPAP, for which she, but which she came close to intubation and mechanical ventilation. I felt impressed in seeing her a week after that, uh, after that encounter in the hospital to ask about her spiritual state and to point out to her her need for spiritual help to kick the habit of tobacco and also to prepare for eternity which will likely come to her at the next bout of respiratory failure. After we had prayer, I gave her a copy of the Happiness Digest, another version of Sepsa Christ, and I could see the hope in her eyes after that encounter. So as we go from here, let us seek each day to be mindful of the spiritual needs of our medical and dental patients 
In doing this, we join the Master in assuring your well-being, not just for now, but also for eternity. This is one measure of Amen's success as an organization and of you individually as members. Now, there's another, another passage that comes to my mind as I was reading through the Gospels, and that is found in John chapter 4. And I, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to that as well. John, John chapter 4 was, uh, was an eye-opening experience for me. I've read it before, but I think it is unique in that it, uh, it exemplifies the, the intensity with which the Master looks out for every single soul in the universe. It talks about a woman of Samaria and about Jesus coming across her, and this is in the heat of day, walking on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples. And while the disciples went out to buy food, Jesus comes up to this woman, and, he's, and he asks for water, but he never drank it. Have you ever noticed? There's no account of him ever drinking it. And it was certainly an encounter intended for a spiritual reason. And uh, after he asked, the, woman, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. This is an interesting uh, account one of the things that, uh, that Jesus brought out to her in, in um, John 4, 13 and 14, it is recorded, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks this water, the water that she, was, she had with her, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What is unique about this encounter is the fact that Jesus looked beyond the usual boundaries that existed in those days. And there were several. There was the fact that gender, which is not so much an issue in our Western society, but in, that, in those times, it was significant. Women were at a different level altogether. And uh, Jesus looked beyond those things. He looked beyond the fact of so much prejudice that was against the Samaritans. And he reached out and looked at this person, this woman, simply as the way God looks at that individual, which is a soul to be saved into his kingdom. And that is what he calls each one of us to do. Now consider that it was high noon on a dusty day after a long journey. He becomes so absorbed in saving this one morally degraded Samaritan's woman's soul that he absolutely forgets his own physical need for the very water that he came to get and also for the food that his disciples subsequently brought. John chapter 4, 32 to 34 records that. But he said to them after the disciples came and said, Master, don't you want to eat? He said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so today I challenge you. The Master is inviting us, inviting us and encouraging us and challenging us to, to take hold of that same priority, to become so absorbed in the saving of that individual person, that individual patient that comes before us, that we forget our own temporal needs, our own secular priorities, and put that as the highest priority. And I challenge myself to that same goal. The Master invites us to emulate him and experience the blessings that come from intimacy with him. 
Another segment, a chapter that really came to my heart was Luke 5, 1 to 7. And I will turn to that as well. Luke chapter 5. I drew a spiritual lesson out of this, which I've never had before. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of one of, out of them and was, were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little away from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. What an amazing encounter. And there are several lessons to be drawn here. There's one regarding soul winning. But I want to point out a lesson that I found from this, which I'd never gotten before. The master is calling upon us like he did with the disciples of old to relinquish our profession, our medical and dental practices to be used in the advancements, in the advancement of his priorities, which is to re- restore that relationship with every human soul which he enjoyed before the fall of man. In return, he promises abundant blessings. As we depart from here, would you join me in committing your professional skill, your practice, to be used by the master for his priority? In return, like the disciples, he promises an abundance of blessings on our secular priorities. I know this. I've seen it in my personal professional life for the past five years. Most importantly, he promises the joys of intimacy with him, which surpasses anything else we can hope for on this earth. With all that's been enjoined upon us and pointed out so far, who engage in this great and noble task of medical evangelism, where do we go from here as an organization called Amen? We live in the most unique time in Earth's history. Every day, our planet shows signs of decay, with a rapid acceleration in last-day events of political, social upheaval, and increasing frequency and scale of natural and man-made disasters. As we look to the written word for guidance, we find great hope, because in the end of it all, what emerges is a God with absolute sovereignty, intent on achieving his purpose on his own timetable. These issues, frightening and stressful as they are to the average person, must engender from us a different response. We must share in the excitement of the heavenly host that this experiment in sin and rebellion is about to end. And after it comes a long-delayed reunion of a loving God with those originally created in his image and after his likeness. That's you and me. After, we were, after all, we were saved by grace through faith. Yet in his ultimate wisdom, he has left the most tangible and measurable event before his return in our hands, namely the proclamation of the gospel message. Have you thought of it? I mean, it's all the signs that have been mentioned about the coming of the end, the only one that is well-definable within which we have a direct part in making it happen is the proclamation of the gospel. This gospel will be preached in all the world, a witness to all the nations, and then shall the end come. That is the most measurable. And within that, he has designated to you and me as a right arm, the entering wedge, 
going places and doing things that we, are on, we only are uniquely qualified and called to do. Let it be said by our posterity, and most importantly by the great physician himself, that we took our charge seriously and accomplished our task. As we look at the work before us globally, we see fields previously closed and now opening, and the laborers coming forward. In February next year, three of us on this board, for those of you who are here Sabbath morning, will be going as part of the team, joining a group going to India to support evangelistic work in the villages out there doing health presentations relevant to them. We need more physicians and dentists who will team up to support the work of these pioneers by providing medical and dental expertise in short-term missions, whether it be direct care or health education. Then there are still the hostile and unopened fields in a predominantly Muslim world of the Middle East and Asia in the 1040 window, as well as in communist China, where we have a unique opportunity as a right arm to develop infrastructure and we will do that so that when these territories and peoples become open, as surely as the Lord will do it, as he did in the former Soviet Union, we will be uniquely positioned to complete our work there that we may go home. So I challenge you to dream as an organization and think globally of the injunction the Spirit of Prophecy gives to us that we can go places, do things that the direct ministry may not and cannot be able to do and put forward the level of skill, intuition, initiative, governance, all that it takes to achieve that, that we put forward in our own individual practices and the achievement of the clinical encounters that each day we are able to achieve. Well, here in North America, Western Europe and Australia and our developed countries, our greatest challenge is actually secular humanism and rampant materialism. Yet the Lord loves these souls whose forefathers came to these lands with a passion for freedom to worship, and to evangelize. Today, the great majority of these have turned their backs from the religion of their forefathers, to idols of materialism and humanism. Paradoxically, some are turning to Eastern religions, where these beliefs are being rapidly abandoned by those same people in favor of Christianity. To thee, the message must be more sober and direct. It is a message of Revelation 14, 6, and 7, well familiar to all of you within this, this uh, group. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That is present truth, and that is what is most relevant to the cities of North America and Western Europe and those places where Christianity has been well-known, but are actually being increasingly abandoned. So as we look at the events of 9-11 on New York and Washington, Katrina and Reed on the Gulf Coast cities recently, we should develop a deep burden for these souls because this is just the beginning of sorrows. What if we, and amen, join our brethren in leadership of our church, our self-supporting ministries like ASI, our consecrated business owners and entrepreneurs, in strategizing how we can reach these cities of the developed world, particularly in our nation, right here in North America. After this, after all, this entire nation is ground zero in the final events of the Great Controversy. If you read the Great Controversy, you find that the United States plays a pivotal role, and this is indeed ground zero. He is challenging us to dream big for him and see him achieve great things on, our beh on, on his behalf. 
In order to achieve all of this, the Lord is calling all of us to a position of absolute humility. We must guard against one of the hallmarks of our professions, rugged individualism and a desire for control. Let us collaborate with whoever, whomever shares our vision and mission, even if they are more visible within that arrangement. After all, this is not about us. It is about him and his priorities. So as we go from here, your servant leaders on the Amen board has voted the following tangible and measurable criteria of Amen's effectiveness, which I want to share with you. And one of them is strictly and simply the number of members we have. I challenge you to go out and help us in gathering the membership that we need to have an amen, to have that critical mass within which we can make that difference that we seek to make. Number two, a knowledge of amen in the Adventist medical and dental community and in the church at large. We must be more better known as an organization because within that we'll attract those who want to minister. Number three is member outreach to patients. Number four is amen collaboration with local churches and other ministries. That is some of what you have seen here this weekend. Number five is amen mentoring and training of medical students and residents. And I want to pause to just say we are deeply appreciative and we're extremely excited to see the students and residents who were able to come out here this weekend. And we, I, I, I want to take the opportunity to also give tribute to Elder Philly as he brought this to our board as an idea and was immediately embraced that it has certainly turned out to be an act of faith that has been well rewarded. And the impact of that is much more far-reaching than we'll ever be able to tell now. That these are young professionals who are just about to get out there. And by being mentored, they can start and actually avoid some of the pitfalls some of us have had to go through. Uh, Amen mentoring, we talked about that. Funds donated for medical evangelism projects, another tangible measure of our success, which I'm pleased to say has been partially achieved this very same weekend with with the amount that has been donated. Number seven is member collaboration with each other. We look forward to you collaborating within those action groups taking that initiative and that vision on your own and having the freedom to pursue it under some general directive from the board only. I realize as I stand the leadership of this organization, I'm reminded of a statement from a leader in the American Medical Association who said, leading physicians is like herding a bunch of cats. That was his statement. And I'm happy to say after the experience this weekend, it has been like consecrated cats. It's been a lot easier to work with. <laughs> it is just... A, it has been a just great, a great blessing to see what it is how consecrated health professionals can work together so we, we can actually teach the AMA a few things. Uh, the next number is developing new approaches and models for medical evangelism. We must sit down and apply the extensive level of intellectual ability that we have towards creating new avenues, new approaches and models for medical evangelism. Elder Finley has challenged us to do that from way back in Kahara Springs. And I'm, I'm excited to hear about David DeRose and some of the ideas he has come up with. That is an example of the type of thing we hope to see within Amen. Number nine is development of new medical evangelism resources, part of what he's been doing as well. And number 10, impacting the view of health message within the church. We are doing the Adventist Health Study right now, as you know. Many of our churches are participating in that. And many of you do know as well, to a large degree, unfortunately, our own health message has been abandoned by many of our own people. That has to be revived, and we have a prime responsibility in making that happen. As, so, John, I'm finally closing with the, with the text in John 15, uh, 4 and 5, because this comes to the crux of the whole achievement uh, agenda. 
which is, he says, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This chapter, John chapter 15, 1 to 11, has presented enormous hope to me personally. And after all that I've said this morning, I, I will confess to you, I never put much effort into it. And I never had to go and do it as a result of guilt. And the reason was simple. As I looked at the master, I was transformed. I was changed personally. And as I attached myself as a branch to the vine, which is what he enjoins upon us to do, it all became so simple and so natural and so pain-free. And so I encourage you after that to read that chapter. As a matter of fact, I fell in love so much with that segment of John 15, 1 to 11, that I've actually memorized it. And many times in the middle of the night, if I wake up and I cannot go back to sleep, or early in the night, if I cannot get to sleep at all, I will actually repeat John 15, 1 to 11 in my head. And it has an amazing calming effect upon me. So I commend that passage to you, because within it lies the secret of all that we have commended you to do today. See, in this entire segment of John 15, 1 to 11, Jesus in his farewell message records the key secret, the essential ingredient, ingredient to achieve all that he enjoins upon us. The master demands much, and he has every right to. We were bought with a price, even his precious blood. Each one of us has our idol, something that competes for our intimacy with the Savior. For the rich young ruler, it was his material possessions. For some of us, it may be our desire for influence. But many of, for many of us, it is the medical dental profession itself and ministry in itself. Somewhere it is written by someone that the greatest competition for our devotion for Christ is our service to Christ. In this passage in John, Jesus makes it clear what the priorities should be, the relationship with him. He demonstrated that in his life and ministry, Jesus was the most busy medical dental professional the world has ever known. He was also the most stressed out, or should be, because he had to do all of this ministry at the same time while being constantly pursued by the Jewish religious leaders of the day and the secular Roman authorities. Can you imagine what his day was like having to minister in the midst and the context of the constant danger to his personal life? Yet we find an amazing commitment to prayer and communion with the Father, which we would do well to emulate. Over five years ago, as I studied life and ministry of Christ, I was impressed with one thing, his effectiveness. He got so much done in three and a half years of ministry, having shelved divinity, taken on humanity, given, taking hold of the same tools that are available to you and me, he achieved in three and a half years what no other leader has ever been able to achieve. He split history in two. He has followers today who will die for him, which no other political or religious leader can, can count on. Jesus was indeed highly and, and immensely effective. And all of us as physicians and dentists have an... We are type A people. We have amazing drive to achievement and effectiveness. And so I commend to you, look at his model. It is a good one that we would do well to emulate. So as I started Life of Christ, I was impressed with that. And as I looked closer, I realized his effectiveness was a direct result of his devotional life. So I decided my personal, as I mentioned earlier when I started studying, that I would implement what I learned. So I decided to double my morning devotional time. Then I triple it. And today, I find myself spending four times as much time as I did with the Lord back a little over five years ago. 
And believe me, the results for me has been tangible. First, the stress of practice left, fear departed, and my heart was changed to where I have a deep love for my wife, my daughter, my patients, my employees, the people who, wrong, who work around me. And from that flows my own personal effectiveness for him in all my endeavors, both secular and spiritual. He invites all of you to experience the same. So my message in the end, after all that I've challenged you to do earlier, is to forget it. Instead, he calls upon us to set aside a portion of your most precious, precious commodity, your time for communion with him. In doing so, your effectiveness will be multiplied and your impact for his kingdom will be much more far-reaching. So before we depart from here, would you commit in your heart, each of you individually, like you do with your other priorities, I challenge you to be deliberate about it. Commit to yourself to spend some time, whatever time you decide in your own individual heart, additional time from what you're doing at present, and say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know how I will fit this additional time into my demanding schedule, which still remains 24 hours only in the day. But please help me to do it and to experience the blessings from it. Would you join me in committing to that? Amen.